Welcome to the Anti-Racism Book Club, hosted by Giles and Vanetta Morrison. Hello. Hello. Right, so episode six of the Anti-Racism Book Club. Yes. Giles and Vanetta Morrison. We're reading How to Be an Mm Anti-Racist by Professor Ibram X. Kendi. Absolutely. Wonderful book. It's been quite a journey because with episode six, we'll be actually going to the last chapter, Mm -hmm. which is chapter 18, starting with chapter 16. Quite a lot to cover, isn't there, darling? Yeah, it's been been an incredible journey, but we'll start off with chapter 16. Do you want to jump jump straight in? Yeah, chapter 16 is on the topic of failure. So with failure... Professor Kennedy is highlighting what we've distilled as three key points here. Mm-hmm. What's known as uplift suasion, mm-hmm. the problem of race, and the topic of protest versus demonstration, which is very, very intriguing. Mm-hmm. So, as always, let's get into the definition. So, an activist is one who has a record of power or policy change. Okay. So this contrasts, I would say, with what most people would see as an activist is someone who has a political agenda. They mm-hmm. want to change the world in some way and they go about trying to change it. But an activist, they have a track record, like they're known for creating change. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're someone who's opinionated, mm-hmm. who wants change, got desire. An activist actually brings about change somehow. Yeah, absolutely. And that was an interesting um, definition to start off with, um, because like Giles said, um, normally when we hear activists, we talk about people who are actively protesting or demonstrating, Mm. and then we realise that those are two different things as well. But we don't necessarily connect it with, actually, you need to have created change. You need to have brought about change. Um, And that's what's different. Um, And failure is all about misdefinitions wrong definitions and there's a quote here that we want to refer to that says incorrect conceptions of race as a social construct as opposed to a power construct of racial history as a singular march of racial progress as opposed to a duel of anti-racist and racist progress of the race problem as rooted in ignorance and hate as opposed to powerful self-interest all come together to produce solutions bound to fail. Let's, let's just go through that again. Because exactly. That's one thing about Professor Kendi. He sure does love his long paragraph, long sentences. I really connect with him. You know, the Germans, <laughs> if you've not been around German people before, we tend to write long sentences. Yeah. So I, I, I love this. So just to simplify, he says that incorrect conceptions of race as a social construct, of racial history as a singular march of racial progress, of the race problem is rooted in ignorance and hate, all come together to produce solutions bound to fail. And this is why definitions are so important. We this is the book started with this premise that definitions are so important, and it continued with this premise that definitions are so important because yeah. failure is lies within what we believe to be truth. Really, yeah. If we if we're constantly missing the mark on something because we don't understand it, because we haven't fully defined it, then of Mm. course failure is a result of this. And it's this juxtaposition of, you know, the social construct versus the power construct Mm. of of race being being an an issue of power rather than social, of of racial history, also Mm. having anti-racial history included in it, you know, and then also the problem being rooted in ignorance rather than self-interest. All of these things 
lead to failure because we're not tackling the right problems. Yeah, yeah. And this is something I can relate to. Mm. You know, during my days at medical school, I set up a not-for-profit called Say It Loud, mm -hmm. community interest company specifically designed to support young people get more into art, music and other creative endeavours to help combat youth crime. And mm -hmm. the thing is, is that there's always been some sort of initiative to get children to mm -hmm. do something creative or to do something other than turn to gangs. Mm -hmm. And we still have issues with gangs. Mm -hmm. And I was very ignorant to this fact because I was, to the, you know, it, looking in hindsight and now that I'm in my 30s, I was virtually a child mm -hmm. in my late teens, early 20s, just about knew much about the world. And ultimately, I wasn't an activist at all. Mm. I was changing the lives of the individual children and young people that were involved with the projects I was doing through Say It Loud. But actually, rule change has to be done by someone who has some sort of power. Mm. They can actually impact and change policy, mm -hmm. or even create policy, which Professor Kennedy talks about a bit later. Mm -hmm. Well, there's, there's another um, quote that he provides, kind of digging deeper into this issue of um, wrong definitions as such. Yeah, so healing symptoms instead of changing policies is bound to fail in healing society. Challenging the conjoined twins separately is bound to fail to address economic racial inequity. Gentrifying integration is bound to fail non-white cultures. All of these ideas are bound to fail because they have consistently failed in the past. And is that a particular point of the fact that there's been repeated failure of mm. doing the same thing? And, you know, thinking of, of, of many famous people, particularly uh, Einstein, mm. if you keep doing the same behavior or trying to observe the same uh, response, but expect something different, by definition, you must be a bit crazy. That's that's mm. what has been suggested. Like, mm. How can you expect to see something different if you don't bring about change? Yeah. So you know, if you see that these failures, just because you are now involved, you being present is enough of a change for otherwise the same steps to be successful. No, it's not as simple as that. Yeah, it really is not. And here we come into the one of the first failure strategies that Professor Kennedy very clearly points out, mm -hmm. which is uplift suasion and. Yeah. Um, We'll, we'll touch on that a little bit more. So we've, you want to continue here then? This yeah, so uplift, uplift suasion really and truly has to do with the idea that black people should constantly be upstanding and of exceptional behavior and mm. achievement in order to persuade away white racism. So the idea is that poor black conduct, you know, when black people perform badly or whatever, they're bringing down the race um, because we're supposed to all be exceptional ambassadors of the black race mm -hmm. so that they're so that we can persuade white people not to be racist by kind yeah. of saying look we are refined we are exceptional we are civilized people so therefore there's no need for you to be racist and it's kind of um you know as we as we talk about it we're like of, of course this is a stupid strategy but it's what we do but it's what we've done it's what we've been doing for years mm -hmm. it's we're all but trained and taught to do this yeah. as we're younger. Exactly. And and you see when this happens with certain celebrities, particularly at the time of this recording, we know of Kanye West, 
clearly having some sort of mental breakdown when mm. he's saying he's going to apply to be president of the United States. Not because he's completely incapable. That's a complete other conversation, whether he's got the credentials, the knowledge, the capability, or even the, the chances of people voting for him. That's a complete other conversation. Mm. But we there is significant evidence to suggest that he only was running for president because he was having a manic episode. Mm. Now, the thing is, though, is that Kanye West is a black man. Mm. In America, when we see him doing something that people think is strange behavior, which in this case is caused by mental health, not so much because he's just acting a fool, then people still start judging black people on mm. the whole quite negatively. Yeah. You know, you know, there's all these things about OJ Simpson, who may well have been a criminal. Mm. We've got Michael Jackson, incredible musician, he could have been doing dodgy things as well. And you know, even was it was um, Bill Cosby, mm. you know, people like this who have had huge impact in the world through their talent, mm. who have positively impacted, entertained, inspired mm. countless numbers of people across the, the race spectrum. Actually, when they fall from grace, it seems like you as a black person, a little bit of your own soul is shattered in the mm. process because that's another black person mm. who's not lived up to the standards that we're supposed to have. And mm. it's like, but you shouldn't be having to have the weight on your mm. shoulders of having to represent the entire entire race. Yeah. Because it's never been a situation of a white person, if they're failing, they're failing the entire human race. Mm -hmm. No mm -hmm. one goes to those lengths. Exactly. And this is this is a, a, a dichotomy that black people live with all the time. This thing of, I want to be an individual, but at the same time, I feel like I'm an ambassador of the race because I might be the only black friend somebody has, black yeah. spouse, black whatever, black person in there or person of color in, in yeah. some in people's environment. Yeah. And so we feel like we're pushed into this, you are the ambassador of your race. And I'm like, mm. I'm, I can barely be the ambassador of my family, you know, let alone of a community or a country or a continent That's like it. that makes That's no it. sense whatsoever and it carries with it as well the pressure of not allow not being allowed to be imperfect which is what every human, human single human is right. you're not not allowed to be imperfect and i think the thing that that the uplift suasion and action for me is definitely the way barack obama um approached presidency in the sense of like I was very satisfied. I don't know, obviously there's policies of, that he might have engaged with that I wouldn't have necessarily agreed with or whatever, but yeah. I'm not American, so it's not really has to do with my everyday. But in terms of how he, I felt he represented black people, I felt like he did them justice. Yeah. Um, and, and that is something that, you know, conversations that white people don't necessarily have. You don't look at a president and, and, or a leader of something and they're like, you've represented white people well, because, there is no distinction. It's There's just no the distinction. Norm. It's just and let's norm. let's be honest, right? Like let's just really pick this apart and mm. think about this. If Barack Obama had a young intern, you know, who he took a liking to, <laughs> had an affair with them, mm. them, you know, lied about the fact they had an affair, mm -hmm. then gets impeached, he he wouldn't just have been impeached because impeachment isn't the same as removing someone from office if they're the president. It's just proceedings to investigate them to, mm -hmm. to remove them from office. Hence why Trump has been impeached and he's still in office. Yeah. You know, Obama would have been impeached and probably would have been sent packing. Yeah. Simply because he's black. Mm -hmm. I'm, I genuinely believe that would have happened. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, 
When then, you know, his wife then goes up and decides to become um, running for president, you know, they never would have given her a ticket. Mm. They just wouldn't have. They just wouldn't have done it. Whereas Hillary now, mm. despite what her husband has done, where he's literally lied to the American people, to the world, in effect, okay, and he's still extremely well loved. Mm. You know, people just just ignore the fact that he lied about having an affair mm. in that position. Like, I'm not saying that, you know, him having an affair as a president is so bad because he's the president. Mm. It's not right to have an affair as a married man. I recognize mm. it's not good to have an affair, but it's just the way that no one seems to care about it. Mm. Yet Monica Lewinsky now, as a woman who is down the pecking order from a man, just the nature of how things are, you know, she was thrown under the bus. Mm thrown under the bus and then I think a tank drove over it afterwards mm. like he was really taking a mick yeah. how even to this day she still can get a lot of flat for it yeah and she she wasn't she just was that she was an intern exactly. she was abused yeah really and truly that was sexual abuse mm. as much as she may have given consent it must have abuse been coerced power. yeah it was abuse, it was abuse of, power. of power um and so I reflect on that and I'm like you know Obama's done good, like he's done good, because yeah. he never, in my opinion, has done anything where people are like, you must be ashamed be, of being yeah, black exactly. because of what Obama has done mm -hmm. to America and the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. The man's won a Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. Come on, man. He always speaks with such dignity. He's always yes. a man of integrity. He even when in the worst cases, when Trump was trying to throw him under the bus before Trump became president, Obama would always be reasoned. And like, it was literally, they had to uphold his, this, this perfect mirage that yeah. most white people never have to feel that pressure. Yeah. They never yeah. have to feel that pressure. Uh, you know, that recognition of, oh, I'm the only black person or only person of color in X environment. Mm. So I better be on my best behavior. Not mm. because we don't want to, of course, if you're good people, you want to be a good person. Yeah. But yeah. it's 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 this kind of, this pressure that is part of it. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so, so uplift suasion, as Professor Kenley said, is a failing strategy. We can't expect individual black people to have to cover for the whole whole black race to persuade away right white racism. It's, it's never worked before because you had exceptional people. You had people who were black black exceptional people and it still hasn't hasn't dealt with racism. That's it right. still hasn't gone away with like people were so ridiculously racist towards Obama while he was in office. For no good reason. For no good reason. Like people had literally in their mind had just said, I will block anything he suggests just because it's Obama. What the heck? Anyway. And for sure, part of that is the fact that also he's he's a Democrat. And yeah, those blocking it would, would normally be um, Republicans. Republicans. But like free healthcare for most Americans who can't afford it. Come on. Yeah. That's not hard to decide is important. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest. Exactly. So moving on then, um, the next topic is then the problem of race. So racism is not based on ignorance or immorality. Yeah, and this is a this is a powerful argument that Professor Kenny brings, and the fact that you know so often we believe that oh people are racist because they don't know or because they don't care, mm. you know. So therefore, let us create educational strategies or let us create moral strategies. So we kind of show people the horrors of racism. So when they see us, you know, Thirteenth the documentary on Netflix. Those are some terrible truths, you know, and I and I doubt there are 
many people regardless of their skin tone skin tone that will watch it and not be touched yeah. you know and these are and i'm not saying that this is what ava duvernay wanted to do um but i'm saying that if you use things like this to say okay go and educate yourself go and become more moral it doesn't work it yeah. doesn't work because actually the main point that that professor kenny makes is that the problem of race is not one of immorality or ignorance, but actually one of self-interest. And yeah. that's that's kind of the central point here. It's a power, it's a problem of power. It's about owning, you know, having more, doing more for yourself. Mm. It's a matter of selfishness. And yeah. selfishness cannot be educated mm -hmm. um, about. You can't educate someone out of selfishness necessarily. And you also can't moralize someone out of selfishness. Yeah. You need to engage with them on kind of their level in a way yeah you know and and so one of the points that is made is that racism is fueled by fear because those who are in positions of power will spread fear against anything that is um threatening their position of power yeah to maintain that position yeah so for example um you know trump talking about gotta build that wall exactly. the mexicans those filthy dirty criminal like take over the world Mexicans. We've got to have a wall to keep them out because woe is every single American soul that has to suffer a Mexican coming to maybe work in their 20, uh, what was it, 7-Eleven, mm. to mow their lawn, to build their houses, to be their doctors and nurses, to maybe even be in law enforcement, to be their chef, mm. to be their waiter. Oh no, we can't have these horrible Mexicans come over the border who don't contribute to society because they pay all these taxes, but still they're just trouble. You know, let me find an excuse for them why they shouldn't come. Um, 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 like exactly. there's nothing wrong with the Mexicans coming. There's exactly. nothing. Listen, the, the, the drugs don't just come from Mexico. Mm -hmm. If it was as simple as that, how comes this more, the, the Mexicans that are in prison for drugs? Mm -hmm. If it was as simple as that, you know, but this fear that people have about Mexicans crossing the border, mm. they're going to kill everybody. Not so much. And I've seen pictures of people on the border. There's one swing that goes either side of the border. There's people on, on America, then people in Mexico swinging on the swing, up, mm. down, up, down, having some fun with each other. Those are the criminal Mexicans that's going to take over America and destroy it. Mm. That's not what's stopping America being great again. Yeah. <laughs> and exactly this is it this whole this whole concept of we've lost something that we need to regain and we can only Ooh. regain it by spreading xenophobia and fear and misogyny and racism like it just it doesn't make sense but that is how racism it fuels itself yeah because people are afraid of change and professor kendi is that there's a very interesting argument that he brings about the fact that actually maybe you should just make the change and let people deal with the consequences because once you've made the positive anti-racist change mm -hmm. people will actually get to realize this is great you know i love hanging out with my mexican neighbors i i i love the community that we're building together these are great people but they've been demonized by racist power yeah and and so the fi the final point on, on this part is the the fact that cultural behavioral and educational enrichment programs do not bring the policy policy change needed. Yeah. So you trying to go into neighborhoods to say, okay, let's you know teach white people about Mexicans. Let's have a Mexican night and let's you know have tacos or whatever other foods that Mexicans have because I actually don't know how 
indigenous tacos are, at least mm. the way we eat them nowadays, yeah. are they actually truly Mexican? Um, but yeah, so all these kind of programs that tr are trying to appease to white people, to, to dissuade them from being fearful mm -hmm. and, and trying to educate them more about other races are not working because this has happened before and it's not really brought a difference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Spot on. So, so moving on then, um, there's another quote here. Yeah. And it reads, self-critique allows change. Changing shows flexibility. Mm. Anti-racist power must be flexible to match the flexibility of racist power, propelled only by the craving for power to shape policy in their inequitable interests. And so the point made here kind of is about the fact that, okay, racists are flexible because ultimately they consistently pursue their self-interest. That is their main goal. Mm. So anti-racists who maybe only tackle one thing are losing out on providing solutions that actually bring about anti-racism mm -hmm. because they're so focused on only one thing, not realizing that racists are consistently shifting. Like yeah. Trump will go from shaking China's hand and being in bed with Russia to actually t telling people that TikTok is going to be banned or mm -hmm. he wants to ban t TikTok in the US because he's now falling out with China. And it's kind of like, okay, so he's able to change his mind. If anti-racists aren't copying that flexibility, yeah, their policies immediately become outdated. Yeah, you need to adapt to what's going on. This is it. Because this is a war that you're fighting. Yeah. And wars are made up of battles. Mm. Battles have changing circumstances, changing landscapes, mm -hmm. changing enemies sometimes. You need to adapt. Yeah. Otherwise, absolutely. you just keep losing battles and you eventually lose the war. Very well said, Dr. Morrison. Very well said. Um, and so now, now comes the, the kind of final part of, of this chapter um, mm -hmm. that was very, very eye-opening. And that's about protest versus demonstration. Yeah, so a protest is a prolonged campaign which is forcing racist power to change policy and seize power. Whereas a demonstration, however, is a momentarily publicizing a problem or disapproving power. Mm -hmm. So power typically ignores demonstrations because it's momentary. You know, it's just highlighting a problem. It's like, oh, I'm so upset that, you know, you're giving all these uh, jobs to Uber drivers in South Africa. Me as a taxi driver, I'm getting jobs. Mm. So you know what? I'm, I'm really angry about this. Mm. That's a demonstration where people are complaining about it. Now, a really negative protest using that example is that they start taking those Uber drivers putting them in the back, in the boot, and setting the car ablaze. Mm. I would say that that is more towards still a demonstration, trying to be a protest. But you're just no, it's a, the it's, a it's a protest. It's a protest because they're seizing power in an illegal way, but they're yeah. seizing power. And this is the problem, is that there's a lot of people that are going down this demonstration route and then they turn to violence. Mm. That's not helping the situation because then people are legitimately demonising you. And that's mm. what literally is happening in South Africa. Some of these taxi drivers... People don't trust them. Mm. Me as a black man, I go to South Africa, I'm not driving with a taxi driver mm. because I don't know if one of them is a murderer mm. because I know that this has been happening. Yeah. Likewise, going into an Uber driver, I don't know if the taxi driver is going to be stupid enough to try and set their car ablaze with me inside it. It's, mm. just, it's just awful. It's awful. And this is what has been happening, I think, with some aspects, with some people, with the legitimate um, protesting that's been going on 
with people congregating to protest against the George Floyd murder, mm. a variety of other murders that's happened over the years, not just with George Floyd. That's just been a tipping point, really. Mm. And they jump on that and they're like, you know what, I'm going to beat up some white people, I'm going to beat up some police officers, I'm going to start looting. That's not helping. Yeah, it really isn't. Um, I like the analogy that Professor Kennedy talks about with regards to the fact that the way power ignores demonstrations is like, is the way parents would ignore whining children. Yeah. So if, if a child is throwing a tantrum, many parents will just leave it. Yeah. And then come back to it later. And this we know that some parents won't happening. do that. But but so the, the problem is that unless it's actually the, the bad reputation is so costly that the power needs to step in to kind of save face, you know, the same way a parent maybe in a supermarket won't have their child throwing a tantrum, but at home they'll be like, whatever. Yeah. But in the supermarket, the parent will be like, okay, what do you He's want? It's making the parent look bad. Exactly. Um, normally nothing changes after a demonstration mm. unless the power is trying to um, salvage their reputation. Yeah, so uh, a better way of seeing it, another way of seeing it, is that effective demonstrations leads to a channeling of resources into protests yeah. and getting emotional support from yeah. people who have actual power, mm -hmm. and which then leads to effective protesting mm -hmm. where there's a change in racist policy because whatever authority that's got power at the time, they get to scratch their back in the process of scratching someone else's. It seems quite hard. Yeah, right? Let's does. think about this. We would think that a president of the United States who's seen that there's still modern-day lynchings happening, mm. that there's police officers shooting black people almost for the sake of it mm. because they can get away with it and know that they won't be punished. Mm. Even being fired is not really a punishment. They're a police officer, they'll go and get a security guard job, let's mm. be honest, and they can earn good money being a security guard. So these people, unless they get some sort of benefit out of it, mm. it's very hard to convince them to actually do what's right, what's just, yeah. and actually just change the policy. Yeah. And I sadly think that's part of the reason why we see currently in the Trump um, presidency that there's a lot of issues regarding racism, not just mm. because he has said stuff that has been you know, a serious dog whistle for a lot of mm. terrible racists out there. Mm -hmm. But he has done anything to try and discourage racism, mm -hmm. and racist attacks, racist, racial abuse of any kind. Mm -hmm. He hasn't done anything. So he just persists. There has to be something that could lead to him getting another four years in office or for another hotel of his to get built or some sort of tax break for him. Like something positive needs to happen to him, mm. for him to be like, yeah, I'm more than willing to, to allow this to happen, mm. you know? And that's how it is in, mainly in a democracy, because otherwise, protest is about seizing power. So if you're not in a democracy, you know, you can topple, you can, you can have coups and all yeah, of those things, yeah. kind of things. But in a democracy, it's about looking at how can I use my vote? How can I use my right to change and seize power yeah. um in, in positive ways yeah. so that was chapter 16 let's swiftly move on to chapter 17 which mm -hmm. is about success so the first area we're going to talk about is overt versus covert racism mm -hmm. this is looking at um in particular institutionalized racism or otherwise rather blatant racism and then how to be an anti-racist so what does it mean to have success in being an anti-racist? Yeah. So we've got a quote here that we'll, 
want to go through as well. It says, the story of our generation will be based on what we are all willing to do. Are we willing to endure the grueling fight against racist power and policy? Are we willing to transform the anti-racist power we gather within us to anti-racist power in our society? And this is a huge call to arms yeah. that I think um, Professor Kennedy is, is, is putting out here. Yeah. You know, you yourself as an individual identify as an anti-racist. Mm -hmm. How do you allow that to permeate across, you know, a nation mm -hmm. uh, internationally mm -hmm. to then say we as a nation are anti-racist? Mm -hmm. Not just the government saying that, because this is a crucial thing. It's not the government saying that we are anti-racist. It's the people that that government serves is able to proudly say that. Mm -hmm. That generally speaking, when 9-11 happened, I would imagine that a good 99.9% .9 of people on the American um, country, you know, the, the whole landmass were like, this is wrong. We stand for America. Justice needs to be served. Mm -hmm. Okay. In solidarity, mm -hmm. regardless of race, regardless of gender, sexuality, mm -hmm. yeah, age. Even people who are, are anti-war, they're like, something needs to be done about this. Mm -hmm. Surely, most, the vast majority of people, how you bring about justice, how you respond, that's a complete other conversation. Mm -hmm. But it's the whole people in unison being like, we support this belief type mm -hmm. thing. That needs to happen about anti-racism. It can't be just a few few people. Exactly. It starts out as a few people. Any movement starts out with a few people. Mm -hmm. But we need to get to a point where it's a nation, it's a generation, Across the world who are saying we need to be anti-racist yeah and i i want to just as we hold this quote up i want us to to look, reflect on you know the story of our generation will be based on what we are willing to do you know especially reflecting on the fact that you know congressman john lewis died you know two weeks ago a, a, a little yeah, while ago so we're now talking about in july and I didn't realize, obviously, having having read more about his life and, and, and what's going on, how young he was when, you know, they, they went over the Selma Bridge and the fact that his skull got cracked into. Listen, he was brutalized. He nearly died. And he then put his life, he devoted his entire life exactly. to civil rights movement. In yeah, to anti-racism. And it's like, okay... His generation was the generation of him, Martin Luther King Jr., all the people that were kind of around in that era and at yeah. that time who were willing to do what was necessary and who often sacrificed their lives yeah. for what they believed in. I know that Martin Luther King Jr. surely knew that his life was on the line every single day of his life. This is it. Not just before he even became um, uh, the famous activist that we know him as, mm. but even before... He knew that him speaking up and being a black man alone, his life was on the line. And it didn't stop him. And I I like I struggle. Am mm. I willing to die for being an anti-racist? Mm. That's a tough question. I don't I don't think I can question. I don't think I can say yes right now. Mm. And I think part of the reason why I don't think I can say yes to that right now is that why should I have to lose my life? Like, why mm. should it have to get to that sort of mm. uh, uh, seriousness? that mm. I might have to die so that other black people don't die, mm. don't have problems with, you know, trying to get a house, trying to get a job. Like, it shouldn't come to those lengths. I think mm. there's enough of us that have died already, mm. quite frankly, which has been a tragedy in itself. Yeah. Yeah, that's a powerful question.
That's a powerful question. So chapter 17 then starts with um, overt versus covert racism. And you might have heard these terms before. They were actually coined in 1967 by Kwame Ture and Charles Hamilton. And it talks about the fact that individuals on other individuals being racist towards other individuals is more overt. So this is the derogatory language. These are actual acts of racism against somebody else. Yeah, racial abuse, like exactly. physically abusing somebody, verbally abusing someone, yeah. so on and so forth. And then we've got the um, covert version, which is basically communities versus communities. So for example, seen as the whole white community is racist towards the whole black community. That's kind of how it was seen. Or the system. This the system that's racist. Or the man. The man. Yeah. And and it's about this whole concept about the fact that actually the system is very a very vague understanding of the source of covert racism. And people struggled with understanding what is the system? What is the system? Mm. Um, but one of the things that comes out in, in the book is the fact that actually it's not as black and white no, as we believe it would be. It's not as easy as we believe it would, should be. And there's a lovely quote that we want to read, which says, our eyes have been closed by racist ideas and the unacknowledged bond between the institutional anti-racist and the post-racialist. They bond on the idea that institutional racism is often unseen and unseeable. Because it is covert, the institutional anti-racist says, because it hardly exists, the post-racialist says, and it continues. A similar bond exists between implicit bias and post-racialism. They bond on the idea that racist ideas are buried in the mind because they're implicit and unconscious, implicit bias says, because they are dead, post-racialism says. And so this is, this is all about actually, you know, the fact that it's not that simple. It's not, we can't, yeah. it's, it's not overt, covert. Racism is not that simple. And, um, you know, the fact that actually some white people don't benefit from racism. Yeah. And some black people do. Yeah, that's right. You know, and so we, we, we literally can't say, okay, overt is white communities versus black community, or covert is white communities versus black community. Because actually it's not every single white person that's racist. It's not every single white person that benefits from racism. Yeah. And the same way every single black person is not anti-racist automatically. Yeah. We know this, we've learned this. And also not every single black person doesn't benefit from the racist constructs that we live in. Mm. Um, and actually as an anti-racism, racism is always overt if we can see racist policy in a racial inequity. Whenever we should always be able to see through the data yeah. to the policies. Or we should always be asking ourselves, what are the policies behind the data? Yeah. So if we're reading statistics that say, you know, black women are five times more likely to die in childbirth than white women in the UK, you, we need to go behind the, the, that data and say, why? Yeah, and, and like, especially when you think about it, we're talking about a minority having mm. the majority of a situation yes, exactly. happening to them. Like whether it's a good statistic or a bad statistic, you've got to think, how come a minority is standing out more so than a majority yeah. group? Yeah. But people just, too often, they kind of just accept it like a fact. Mm -hmm. Even like at medical school, I'm taught, well, if you're from South Asia and you've got a cough and you've got a little bit of blood in that cough, you've got TB until proven otherwise. It's like, hang on, why, why does it have to be as simple as that? Mm. I'm not disputing the fact that it's quite common 
But we can't just keep saying that, well, you belong to a group, you're more likely to have these diseases. There's a reason for this. Yeah, what, what are we why? gonna do about these people from South Asia coming to East London, where I was born and raised, where I study medicine, them coming there and getting TB? Mm. Like we shouldn't just be seeing it as a pattern. Yeah. We should be investigating the cause and stopping it from happening. Mm -hmm. So that when people are coming from that community, they're not dying of TB. Mm. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's like it's not it's not rocket science. Mm. And it's the same thing with where we're hearing about all these racial inequities. You see there's a racial group that's got a worse off life. There's a reason. It's not just because of the color of their skin mm. means suddenly they don't have money. Mm. It shouldn't be like that. Exactly. There is a reason and there's a policy that's linked to that reason. And this is, so this is where the central quote in this comes in that policy make policymakers and policies make societies and institutions, not the other way around. Mm. So when we talk about the system, this vague concept of the system, it's not vague. It consists of communities of racist powers. It consists of communities of policymakers that create racist yeah. policies, that create racist societies that we are then raised in. But because we don't necessarily see that direct link between a racist power and their self-interest and the policies we create, we're then like, oh, institutional racism. We don't quite understand how it's happened. And therefore we don't quite know how to solve it. Yes, we do. It's very yeah. clear. It's very clear. It's the people at the top who have, who use racist powers, who are racist powers, who perpetuate racist ideas, and who mm. create racist policies that nations then abide by. Yeah, no, spot on. You know, I'm like one of the things that I'm obviously we're we're loosely following the American elections, mm -hmm. countdown to the elections, 2020. I think the whole world might be doing that. And one of the things that has has that rings alarm bells for me is the fact that they're now talking about the fact that um, President Trump is um, wanting to ban mail-in voting. Yeah. So people can't uh, vote by post. Firstly, we're in a pandemic. <laughs> So people are supposed to be encouraged to stay at home as much as they possibly yeah. can, particularly in America, where the pandemic is not under control. It is Listen, not under that, control. That, that's an epidemic. That's a pandemic, epidemic, almost endemic. Like it's like persistently terrible. It's the worst place to be. So, so for you to to stop people from mailing in is causing a risk to everybody's health. But secondly, another reason why he doesn't want mail-in voting is because apparently Democrats are more likely to choose that option of voting. So because he's already behind in the polls and because he's trying to secure his second term, he's choosing to create a nonsense, racist, you know, policy that will then protect his power. Yeah. And, and the thing about this is, because I, I, if it's not already obvious, I don't, I'm not a fan of Trump. Okay, I'm not, I don't, mm. I don't really rate him as as a president. But even if it was Obama, someone who I have liked, even if he's someone who who is, you know, the best president ever. Actually, if you are making it difficult for certain people to vote, you are you are committing a crime in my eyes. Mm -hmm. Like you're abusing your power. Yeah. Everyone should have the right to vote. Exactly. Who has the right to vote, they should vote. Yeah. 
you shouldn't be making it more difficult. Exactly. And what's happening now is the suggestion, well, if you don't vote by post, then instead actually no one will vote. Mm. We'll just delay it so that he can get away with being president for longer. He's not in a war. Mm. It's a pandemic with yeah. a virus. We don't have a cure for it yet, but it's a virus. You don't have to say, oh, well, we can't have a new president because what's going to happen with our war against COVID-19? You didn't even think it was a war in the first place. Exactly. You pretend that this virus isn't even anything. It's Chinese exactly. virus, not even something for us to be worrying about. So like this sort of stuff, really, we shouldn't be standing for it. So I think just on that point and, and looking more into the fact that we need people who are like, you know what? We need to be anti-racist. Mm. We actually need to be bringing about change. Mm. You know, Professor Kendi has written out a list of points which outlines exactly how can you be an anti-racist. Yeah. So there are uh, 10 points, is there? Eight points for how to Eight be an anti-racist individual. Mm-hmm. And then we also talk about institutions at, uh, at a different point. So let's look at point one then. So point one is stop saying I'm not racist or I can't be racist <laughs> because... That's actually a lie. Of course, I can be a racist. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, I have been, mm-hmm. you know. I've been born in an Afro-Caribbean home. You know, my mother's from the Caribbean. Father was from Antigua before he passed on, you know. I, I'm used to being around black people. Mm. It doesn't mean that I would hate being around white people. Mm. But it's not something that I was my first instinct mm. to do. Because they don't look like me. Mm. So I feel that. I'm different to them. Mm -hmm. And then I go to a primary school where most of the children, particularly in my class, were from Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. They don't look like me. They don't eat similar food. They don't listen to the same music. There's a lot of differences amongst us, different languages even that are being spoken. So there's times when it's like, well, I'm different. It doesn't mean that I'll be abusive, but I'll think that they're different and that maybe they should be more like me. Mm. This is an assimilationist idea as a child. Because I'm trying to be more British, so to speak. Mm I'm like, but that means that I can then become a racist even as a child. Mm-hmm. I'm not malicious in that belief, but that's what's going on. Yeah, yeah. And again, the whole I'm not or I'm not racist is the whole concept of accepting that there is only two options, anti-racist yeah. or racist. There is no in between. And it's as simple as that. Mm. You have to even be a racist or an anti-racist. You can't be on the fence here. But again, appreciating that racist or anti-racist, you know, that whole concept of it's a peelable name tag. It's not a tattoo. Yeah. If we're not saying these labels to condemn people, but it's based on what are you doing? What are you thinking? What yeah. are you believing? That's right. And you can change what you do. You can change what you think and you can change what you believe. That's right. So point two then is define racist correctly. Yeah. So this is supporting racist policies or expressing racist ideas that's what it means to be a racist yeah and a lot of us can support um racist policies but Mm -hmm. i think we're more likely to be ignorant of the fact that we're expressing racist ideas Mm. i'm sure you've heard similar comments v where people are like i'm so glad there's no tourists around Mm. because of the fact that those tourists are foreigners Mm. they're of a different racial group from a different culture to you that's why you don't want them around you that's a racist idea yeah Yeah. you know when you say well all germans are stubborn and they love bureaucracy that's a racist idea yeah have you met every single german exactly you can't say that just Mm -hmm. because you might see certain ways that um uh, a certain government agency operates seems a bit bureaucratic that doesn't mean that little old lady down the street 
that young kid coming out of university, let a child going into kindergarten, to reception class, primary, junior school. You can't say they're all like that. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. It's a racist idea. Yeah. Point three. Point three is about confessing my own racist policy support and racist idea expression. So after we've defined it based on it's about policies and it's about ideas, we now need to confess our own support of racist policies or our own racist idea expression. We need to stop denying the fact that we are dealing in racism until we start being intentionally anti-racist we are racist yeah. because we are supporting racist policies and we're expressing racist ideas. Number four. The fourth part is about accepting the source of those policies and the, those ideas, you know, and understanding that it's based on our upbringing in racist power led societies. You know, we are, we, we are not, we don't grow up in a bubble. So yeah. everything that we, take on everything that we've experienced is partly to do with our primary caregivers, but also our primary communities mm-hmm. of in which we've grown in, uh, the nations that we've grown in and how they have felt about other people. Um, yeah, and we need to accept that part. We need to appreciate that it's come from somewhere. Yeah. Point five then is define anti-racist correctly. Mm-hmm. Supporting anti-racist policies or expressing anti-racist ideas. That's what it means to be an anti-racist. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's it's more likely the case that people can be an aspiring anti-racist mm-hmm. than to say I'm always anti-racist. Mm-hmm. I think it's very, very difficult mm-hmm. for most people to say that they're always anti-racist. Mm-hmm. Especially, for example, do you have any negative feelings towards the um, trans community? Mm. Anything against people? that identifies LGBTQA+, like, if you have anything against any of those people, mm. by definition, it's impossible for you to be, at the time of that case, for you to be an anti-racist. Yeah. Because you're supposed to be able to accept anybody, mm-hmm. regardless of how they're different to you. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that you need to do what those people who are different to you do, like, I don't have to pray five times a day as a Christian. That's what Muslims do. Mm. I might pray five times a day, but I'm doing that for my reasons, Mm. for my belief. You know, I'm married to a woman because that's my desire. That's what I want. Mm. But for me to be an anti-racist, it means that I need to accept a Muslim. I need to accept someone who is homosexual, Mm. who's um, transgender. Mm -hmm. That's what it means to be an anti-racist. And you don't just accept it begrudgingly. Mm. You need to genuinely care about these people. Mm. You don't have to necessarily see them as your best friends. That's a complete other situation, Mm. okay? We're talking about accepting people, which should lead to respect. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of religions, a lot of even uh, people who don't follow a faith, they talk about loving others. Mm. That's what we're talking about. You're accepting someone's differences, regardless of what that difference is, Mm -hmm. within reason, Mm -hmm. okay? I'm not saying someone is a, a pedophile you know yeah it's, it's a criminal but if someone's different to you and they're just trying to live their best life you've got to, you've got to still have love for that mm. person that's 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 what we believe in so moving on then um six yeah six is about fighting fight for anti-racist power and policy in my spaces and i love it because actually in the list that professor kenny talks about he said i struggle for anti-racist power and policy in my spaces. And I was like, why is he using I struggle? But I think it's the whole concept of we might not always win, but yeah. we're seeking 
to, to, to do this on a consistent basis. Yeah. And in, in our spaces, so we know the chapter about spaces that talks about, you know, whether it's HBCUs or HWCUs um, or, you know, all these universities that are historically black or historically white or whatever, it's still about fighting for anti-racist power and policies yeah. in those spaces that we have influence over, be it in our churches, be it in our, you know, um, neighborhood um, or community centers. The, the the public spaces need to have need to be equal. Yeah, need to be equally accessible. Um, and so that's what he means with with point six. Yeah, point seven. Point seven is about taking effort to remain at anti-racist intersection. And Giles has already touched on this. The fact that you know we want to eliminate racial distinctions in biology and behavior. So we we're not saying you know black people are the strongest race or whatever or white people are the most civilized you know we're eliminating that that is racist and that should never be that but we're equalizing racial differences in ethnicity in bodies in cultures colors classes spaces genders and sexualities and that's what that yeah. you touched on that already um so we need to remain at those intersections we need to understand that anti-racism doesn't happen in a bubble by itself but actually there's so many distinction, racial distinctions. Yeah. And when we're saying that anti-racism is about equity among the racial groups, we need to consider the racial distinctions. Yeah, that's it. So the last one then is work hard to think with anti-racist ideas, not blaming people, but rather blaming policies for racial inequity. And that's, that is probably the hardest area. Mm -hmm. It's almost as difficult as you closing your eyes and someone says, don't think. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and of course, your mind's going to start racing and having different ideas. You know, we're trying to now say to you is that when your eyes are wide open, mm. only think anti-racist ideas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for sure, like, when you then face certain issues that otherwise you may then have had a racist idea for and you're told, don't ever have that thought again. Mm. Just keep it anti-racist. That's hard. Mm. That's hard for someone who was never taught to actually accept um, homosexuals, mm. to accept someone who's transgender, to accept people from different religions, mm. to be taught about these differences, consciously taught about these differences and told to accept them. Mm. A lot of people aren't. It's only a much more modern phenomenon where we're taught about these things in mm -hmm. schools. Mm -hmm or even just in the media, or from friends, or even from relatives. It's just much more of a modern thing. And so we're now being challenged by Professor Kendi. Whenever you have an idea, keep it anti-racist. Mm -hmm. That's not easy. That isn't. It's that not isn't. easy. And it's also not easy, like you, um, like you were touching on, babe, it's also not easy to not blame people, but instead yeah. look at policy. So again, it's going, looking at the data looking at the data and challenging the data, not just seeing it as the numbers, but actually fi figuring out what story the data is telling. Mm -hmm. Because data is very neutral, you know, so it, it but, but we can use it almost however we want to tell the stories we want. Yeah. And most stories that are told are racist stories. Yeah. So we need to actually challenge that data and see, so why is it that X is happening more to, to the white community than to the black community or the black community to the white community or to, the heterosexual community than the homosexual community. Like we need to challenge the data. We need to challenge the stories that are being told about the data. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in the in that work, like you said, and you hinted at, that is hard work. That mm -hmm. is really hard work. And we also need to reflect on self-care in that. And that's mm -hmm. why the next quote um, 
I think plays such a vital role where Professor Kendi talks about the fact of how could I worry about my body as I stared at police officers butchering the black body almost every week on my cell phone? How could I worry about my body when racists blame the dead, when the dead's loved ones cried and raged and numbed? Yeah. And it's, you know, when we initially read this, we were like, wow, okay. And then reading over this again, I was like, oh, I get the even more so of what you're saying about we as we fight this fight of anti-racism, we cannot keep our eyes of our own bodies. Yeah. We cannot neglect our own bodies to that to that point because actually, especially when we come to chapter 18, mm -hmm. there's a lot. There's a lot that Professor Kendi has gone through personally. Yeah that you know he he is so gracious to to, to be open to us yeah. towards you know because he didn't have to share that he didn't so let's let's get into that then yeah. so the last chapter mm. um wonderful wonderful um way to, to end the book really looks at the topic of racism and cancer and mm. how to be an anti-racist institution mm. so the, the first thing here is, is a quote from, from Professor Kendi. The history of racist ideas is the history of powerful policymakers erecting racist policies out of self-interest, then producing racist ideas to defend and rationalize the inequitable effects of their policies, while everyday people consume those racist ideas, which in turn sparks ignorance and hate. Mm -hmm. And what is particularly powerful um, about this point is we see this not just in modern day, but when you unpick it, it's that people, if they really trust an authority, like if they trust their president, their prime minister, their first minister, however you want to call it, their head of state, mm. even relatives, certain relatives, elders of a community, religious institution, if they respect an authority who is speaking to them on a topic, they don't think about the ideas that they're being taught. Mm. They see it as facts rather than opinions. Yeah. And they blindly accept the facts. They don't question them, they don't analyze them. And then ultimately, had a little mishap there with a water bowl, never mind. <laughs> you know, people are blindly following these ideas mm. without questioning people. And that happens because of blind trust, mm. blind faith in someone. Mm. And if that authority, isn't actually infallible like if these people can lie for their own self-interest mm. then these people who are blindly trusting blindly having faith in these leaders in these people in positions of power mm -hmm. just causes a lot of pain and suffering yeah and so we really need to look at how can we get those who are in power to actually have the anti-racist ideas because from them cascading it down to others that racist ideas and rather anti-racist ideas can permeate a nation. Mm. That's what ultimately can lead to you having an anti-racist institution, mm. an anti-racist nation, an anti-racist world. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think we the first point that Professor Quinn talks about is racism and cancer. And like we said, this is him talking about his personal experiences. So for those who haven't read the book, this is going to be a spoiler alert. Yeah. But um, so his both his mother and father had cancer. Then his newlywed wife had cancer. Within a couple of weeks of them getting, getting married. married. And then he ends up having cancer as well. 
And it's just crazy because, you know, we are following his personal experiences, but he has been able to connect what he's going through personally with what his heart is professionally with regards to anti-racism. Yeah. And he, he, he pulls so many parallels that are so powerful. One of them being the fact that, you know, denial makes everything worse. Yeah. You know, when, when he got his cancer diagnosis, he was denying it to begin with. Mm-hmm. When his wife got her cancer diagnosis, he was denying it to begin with. Because yeah. he's just like, no, this is, this is not happening. This is not happening. Or then saying, okay, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. But actually, he was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. Yeah which for those who don't know, stage four is the highest stage. And it's the metastatic is spreading. Exactly. It's spreading and the odds to survive are so Yeah, you're normally small. dead within five years. So small. If not a lot sooner. And yet, Professor Kenley says, you know, the world has stage four racism. Hmm. The way that he's had stage four cancer where, you know, the odds are small, but it is possible to beat it. Yeah. It is possible to beat it. And we need to understand the fact that racist power is not godly racist power uh, and what he means by that is the fact that actually racist power is still human yeah and whenever we try to um make it vague or make it like divine or whatever yeah. we we lose our own ability to fight racism. Yeah, you power. feel it's impossible exactly whereas actually racial inequities are not inevitable yeah. which is seems strange because we've grown up in this world where that's been the case for so many centuries yeah but that isn't how it was from the beginning that isn't how it was from the beginning. It's not how we were designed to be. Exactly. Because let's think about it. You you are born and raised in Palestine. You're born and raised in London, right? Mm. You're born and raised in South Africa in a, you know, a wonderful neighbourhood. You're born and raised in South Africa, but you're in uh, a shantytown. Mm. Like, just because of the space that you're in is determining the trajectory for your life. Yeah. But actually... You could change those spaces. Mm-hmm. You could literally change the spaces. Part mm-hmm. of the reason why we have people, you know, emigrating to other parts of the world, you know, but it's it's the fact that we keep thinking that well, that's just what happens, isn't it? Yeah. People are something like no, people can actually be born and mm-hmm. actually have a great life. They can actually be born, have great health, mm-hmm. have job opportunities, live to a ripe old age, yeah. have generational wealth. Yeah, this can actually be a truth for people. Mm-hmm. And his last point then, V. It's about, yeah, the fact that we can't lose hope. Yeah. That we need to continue fighting the anti-racist fight, even if we don't necessarily benefit of all its fruits. We're fighting for the generations to come. Yeah. We're fighting for our children, our children's children, and our children's children's children, and, and so on. You know, we, we, are, we are building on what John Lewis has done. We're building on what Martin Luther King Jr. has done. We're yeah. building on you know, what so many people who have gone before us have done. Angela Davis, Audrey Lord, like mm-hmm. so many people who have been activists and have given their lives purpose and have actually given their lives yeah. to fight this fight. We are fighting this race, yeah. fighting this fight with them. Yeah, yeah. So then we come to the final part of the book where Professor Kenny takes us through the stage of how to be an anti-racist institution. Because for those that don't know, he actually heads up the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center in Washington, DC. He's obviously still lecturing and things like that. Um, And in him creating an institution that would then employ people and that would then engage with people about how to make anti-racism a tangible and um, 
protest. Yeah. Um, this is some of the work that he was doing. Yeah. And these are the points that we that we end with, really. So number one, admit racial inequity is a problem of bad policy, not bad people. Mm. You know, this this and again, this is not just coming down to an individual level. Yeah. This is people in power yeah. in an institution. So it's the CEO, it's the yeah. rest of the C suite, right? Yeah. It's the direct reports into the C suite mm-hmm. of, of managers. Like they need to say racial inequity is a problem of bad policy. Mm-hmm. What bad policies do we have? Mm-hmm. Let's not just like, well, we're going to fire some people and exactly. then suddenly everything's going to be better. Exactly. Like at the moment, part of the current affairs is with Ubisoft, a very, very popular um, game developer known for the Assassin's Creed games in particular of modern day. And it's huge issues of sexual abuse allegations that are going around. It's like, well, let's fire this person and we'll fire that person and mm. everything will be well. It's like, well, no, mm. clearly there has been some sort of policy, unwritten policy in place mm. has allowed these powerful people to commit these sexual crimes. Mm. Mm. Clearly. So just getting rid of the people that have been the main perpetrators who've been found out doesn't mean that you're also going to prevent the perpetrators that haven't been discovered mm. to just stop what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is why we need to be like, if there is an inequity, not just a racial one, any inequity going on, Mm-hmm. In, in an establishment we need to identify what is the bad policy that's led that to happen yeah that's given birth yeah to that inequity mm-hmm. and not just be looking at oh, who's the culprit in this fight because too much blaming of individuals yeah which is easy because you get rid of the person and then people are like oh well this situation is dealt with now yeah and then they kind of forget about the issue yeah it's like no you didn't you didn't sort out the cure mm. at all mm-hmm. you just put a band-aid on it you just mm-hmm. put a plaster on it Ugh, that's so powerful because it, I mean, it's even making me think about this whole cancel culture. But this is a topic for another yes. day. Um, but yeah, so point two is identifying racial inequity in all its intersections and manifestations. Yeah. And again, this is touching on the intersections are intersections of ethnicity, class, gender, sexuality, cultures, bodies, spaces, everything that Giles has already commented on. You know, it's actually identifying that it doesn't come in a in a simple shape there's Mm. so many intersections of racial inequity yeah point three is investigate and uncover the racist policies causing racial inequity yeah we've touched on this as well yeah and then invent or find anti-racist policy that can eliminate racial inequity Mm -hmm. now this this step is actually i think a little bit more challenging because Mm. In introducing an anti-racist policy, it could well lead to some people having to get fired. Yeah. Could highlight that some people are blatant racists mm. and they are the cause for things going on. Mm. So-called heads would need to be rolled. Mm. And um, this is where you might find a lot of opposition, unfortunately. Mm. And I think that's probably why, for example, Obamacare has had so much trouble because there's a lot of people that make an incredible amount of money from the health inequalities in America, mm. like people not being able to afford healthcare mm. means that they have to pay when they're really, really sick mm. or some charity pays for them. So mm. it means that a lot of hospitals will still get the money anyway type mm. situation. So like there's definitely some policy change there that people don't want to fight. Yeah. But five then, let's figure out who or what group has the power to institute anti-racist policy. The way I see it as someone who works in user experience, 
um, in UX is you need to know who actually is the champion of the change you're trying to bring. Mm -hmm. You're trying to improve the experiences of somebody, but someone's going to have some power that could be blocking that experience. Mm -hmm. They may not be giving you the money, there are otherwise resources that's needed to bring about the change mm -hmm. or the buy-in. So you've got to find out who actually has that power because mm -hmm. unless you've got them on your side, you're not getting anything done. Yeah. You're just going to have continuous efforts of protesting and never actually have any successful activism going on. Uh -huh. Yeah, absolutely agree. Point six is about disseminating and educating about the uncovered racist policy and anti-racist policy correctives. So this is about actually communicating this to all stakeholders telling them what was the policy, the racist policy, mm -hmm. and what are the anti-racist policy correctives that are being put in place instead. Mm -hmm. So there's no guessing, there's no, oh, I didn't know. No, this needs to be a, a, a community, a, a all user communication. And it's not just an email that people can ignore, but it's about actually going to the nitty gritty levels yeah. of forums, focus groups, whatever it takes to communicate this transition from the racist policy the anti-racist policy corrective yeah and in point seven similar to point five work with sympathetic anti-racist policy makers to institute the anti-racist policy yeah. so again it's the stakeholders engaging with the stakeholders that are anti-racist yeah to help you in this process and this is a situation that a lot of people are having at the moment they see trump as a racist mm. they see him as someone who is an obstacle Therefore, you can't just simply go to him to bring about change. If you yeah. genuinely believe that he's part of the problem, he can't directly be part of the solution. Mm -hmm. Indirectly, he has to be mm -hmm. at some point. Um, and directly. The mm -hmm. reason why I say indirectly, because someone will have to move him. Mm -hmm. Someone will have to tell him X, Y, Z. Or he has to be removed from office so someone else does it. Mm -hmm. It's literally as simple as that. It seems harsh. It seems like, well, maybe there's another way. I don't, I don't believe there is. Mm. If you stand by the fact that he's a racist and he's not going to do what you're saying, then someone else has to, you know, speak to him who is on your side, mm. who can show a benefit that he gets from satisfying your needs, your anti-racist policies that you're wanting to institute. Yeah. Or he has to be removed from office and someone else comes in. That's it. And then the last point then is deploy anti-racist power to compel or drive from power the unsympathetic racist policymakers in order to institute the anti-racist policy. It's pretty literally what you just mentioned with Trump, the fact yeah. that they will just have to be moved from office. Yeah. And this, this is a really, really difficult thing mm. to, to do at times because as said, you know, there's policies being put in place which could delay the, the election for for next term of presidency mm. like that shouldn't be happening it should i don't believe a pandemic is an excuse because if it was as simple as that why would you then be saying that the elderly should be willing to go back to work and be willing to die from covid19 to introduce more money back into the system by people working and build up the economy mm. if you're willing to sacrifice the elderly mm. then for sure you must be willing to get people to vote and do what's democratically right to vote in the president. Yeah. And you can't, you can't be willing to make such statements like that and not be willing to follow through with voting rights. Yeah. I mean, thankfully, most Republicans are not in favor of that at all either. Yeah, so, because it's just not right. Exactly. Um, it's undemocratic. And, that, and this is understanding that, you know, 
it doesn't matter what side you stand on, you know, Republican, Democrat, whatever, actually, they're still anti-racists on either side. Yeah. Um, and they have the power to compel or drive the unsympathetic racist policymakers yeah. out of that's right it's a terrible misconception that all republicans are racist and mm. are evil and are rich like it's just not and i know white like it's mm. not it's not as simple as that just like it's not all democrats who are who are anti-racist mm -hmm. and are middle income like there's some wealthy racist democrats out there mm. who are having a wonderful life because of the fact that they're supporting certain racist policies mm right or worse they're supporting certain anti-racist policies mm -hmm. only because it makes them money yeah there's definitely going on but moving on there's another topic point nine then monitor closely to ensure the anti-racist policy reduces and eliminates racial inequity so basically saying if you brought about a change evaluate yeah you want to make sure that what you said was going to happen bringing in this change has been successful mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're going to have to change something. Yeah. As point 10 um, highlights here. Yeah. And so when policies fail, don't blame people. Start over and seek out new and more effective anti-racist treatments until they work. And this is the whole point. The reason why monitoring is such, a, is such an important point is we cannot afford to be spending centuries and decades employing or deploying the same strategies that are not working. Uplift yeah. suasion was one of those. It's not working. Get rid of it. Yeah. Think of a new one. That's right. And so the final point then, monitor closely to prevent new racist policies from being instituted. Mm -hmm. And this is really important. Mm -hmm. Like People forget like with any sort of infection, it normally takes time to build. Like, there needs to be a trigger, something that's led for that to be infiltrate the body covertly. You didn't even realize that you've mm -hmm. been infected until suddenly you're feeling lightheaded, you're sweating, you're feeling feverish, you're wanting to throw up, you're feeling all aches and pains, and you are sick. Mm. Don't wait till then. Mm -hmm. Be always vigilant to see mm -hmm. what could be crouching in mm -hmm. to bring in some new racist policy to undo all the hard work that yeah. you have done. Yeah. So important. So yeah. important to keep your eyes open. Mm -hmm for seen and unseen dangers because mm -hmm. they exist yeah all the time absolutely so v how to be an anti-racist i know what a book i know what a book I know. like it's been a journey these mm. past uh six weeks mm -hmm. reading this book has really taught me a lot we'll, we'll be doing one last episode where Sweet. we just cover all the main things from all 18 chapters core definitions, what's really impacted us um, the most, mm. just like a final debrief of the book. But I can't fault the book. Or if I did, I would say that sometimes, Professor Kendi, please have sentences a little bit shorter. You have to take mercy on me. The long <laughs> sentences where I'm having to read it three, four times, make sure I fully understand what you're saying. That was a bit hard at times. I will stretch because it's not an academic book, but you could tell it's been written by an academic. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that was a bit of a challenge, but otherwise it's mind blowing change to my life. Really like mm. the things that I've learned has fundamentally changed how I see myself in society, mm. how I see my marriage in society, mm. how I see the world preparing for when we eventually become parents and grandparents. Mm. 
even myself as an employee versus being someone self-employed, how how do I fit in in this world mm. as a black man? Mm. And to be challenged on how I can be actually anti-racist. I never thought about it before. Mm. I just thought, how can I actually be a black man and survive? Mm. And now I'm having to be like, how can I be a black man who's an anti-racist mm. if I can't at least just be an anti-racist? Because there's still a part of me having to identify as a black man because mm. there are issues that I face as a black man, mm. specifically a black man in Europe, born and raised in London, now living in Germany. Mm. Like that is something that fundamentally changes the way I live my life compared to a white man or a white woman living here, or even a black woman living in Germany, mm. or even someone of another race. Mm. What about you, V? Well, I think my evaluation will come next week, really yeah. and truly, um, or in the next in the next session. Uh, but it's yeah, it's it's been sensational. It's yeah. been sensational. Yeah, I think Wonderful. I want to keep it there. We'll go. We'll go deeper. Cool, in our cool. Final session. So then, last but not least, we want to prepare you for um, season two of the Anti Racism Book Club, which will be kicking off very very soon. So for that, we'll actually be looking at um, a new book. What's the book, V, that we'll be reading? So the book we are reading is Why I Am No Longer Talking to White People About Race. Why did you pick that book? I'm just excited about having a voice that is different to the previous one. So Professor Kendi... American-born, American-based, African-American, Rennie Edo-Lodge, British, um, Nigerian, I believe, mm -hmm. uh, journalist, and a woman. And, and so I'm really excited about just delving into a different perspective. We are European-based. We've always been European-based. Um, and as much as America often is the focus of many race conversations, mm -hmm. Obviously, we know from our own personal life and experiences that isn't the case. And there should be a space where we are communicating our perspectives, our yeah. Afropean perspectives, as yeah. I like to say. Um, and so I'm really excited about just delving into this book and seeing what it's about. Yeah. So if you're interested in that, please do get yourself a copy yeah. of why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. We'll be doing i'm not sure how many episodes for season two just yet for this book um because we haven't we haven't started reading the book as mm -hmm. of, of this recording but very much looking forward to it, it is in a, a very different perspective to professor kendi's one that i will be able to relate to a lot more even more so than vanilla because i was born and raised in the uk a lot of the issues that she'll be highlighting i've, I've faced personally mm -hmm. or at least have some sort of experience with it indirectly so yeah i'm looking forward to that I think this whole journey of, of learning more about any racism is powerful. Mm -hmm. Life, life is changing. Mm -hmm. life the world is, changing. is the world is changing. Yeah, and it has to. Yeah. So, thanks again for tuning into episode six of the Anti Racism Book Club. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. It has been. All right. So, Good last episode coming up next time. Episodes seven for the final um, roundup of how to be an anti racist by Professor X Candy. So bye for now. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining the Anti-Racism Book Club. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with others you think would enjoy it too. 
follow or subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. And if you're listening on the Anchor app, feel free to leave us a voice message.